Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winners Society of Cal Athletics and its alumni network. Each week, we interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life of those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society, who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are, and thank you, thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. All right. Hello there, everybody. This is Joe Roof, formerly of Cal Football and now president of the Big C Society. Together with us today are Robert Paler, the incoming executive director of the Big C Society, uh, Ryan Murphy, the liaison director for men's swimming at Cal on the Big C Society Board of Directors, and our very distinguished special guest, Bank Barron of Cal Men's Swimming, who uh, began his post-sports career as a consultant for McKinsey and & Company and then moved on to the role of uh, president of Coca-Cola Sweden and Fionor Sweden and Kodak and Stepstone, <laughs> and then on to the CEO real, uh, sort of role of uh, Vin & Sprit, a spirits firm that owns the uh, ubiquitous brand Absolute Vodka, which Bank launched until he sold it to Pernod Ricard. And then later, uh, he took on the role of CEO for the global confectionery company, Cloetta. Uh, I think there was an antecedent company before that, and then now he's temporarily retired. Is that right, Bengt? <laughs> well, hopefully not temporarily, but semi-retired, I would say. But otherwise, <laughs> quite correct. Okay. And if that wasn't remarkable enough, uh, here's a quick bit of additional sports background on Bengt. Uh, the year prior to arriving at Cal in 1980, at age 18, Bengt wins gold in the 100-meter backstroke in the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow. Uh, and then in the three years from 1979 to 1985, he won a total of 33 Swedish titles, including bronze in the 4x100-meter freestyle at the 1984 Summer Games in Los Angeles, along with scores of races for the Golden Bears, seven Pac-10 gold medals. And you know, while at Cal, he was also a four-time All-American, earned four varsity letters from 82 through 85, was an NCAA top 10 scholar athlete, graduated with a BS from the Haas School of Business. And then in 1988, he earned an MBA from the Haas School of Business. And then in 1999, he was inducted into the Cal Hall of Fame. So it's hard to believe that you can like fit all that into one lifetime, but he's not done yet. <laughs> he's, he's, he's just in his 50s. So anyway, it's really, it's really a pleasure to have you here. And I can tell you, at least for me, it's like super motivating reading that. And I really figure I got to get going with my life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it thanks. It is an absolute honor to to talk to you as a as a fellow Olympian, a fellow backstroker. I, I do. We, we are going to touch on your your post swimming career, but we we've got to give your your swimming career some due diligence due diligence here. So you won the Olympic gold at age eighteen, which is insane. 
And it, it obviously shows the level of focus, commitment, determination that you have in terms of committing and succeeding in, in, your, in, in achieving your goals. Could you tell us about your early years in Sweden and how you ultimately ended up at Cal? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for all the nice words. Uh, even though, Ryan, especially you, you remind me every day of how much, how much slower we swam in the old days <laughs> compared to today. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, now, um, well, uh, I moved around quite a bit. So I, I grew up in Africa, and then we moved to Sweden and moved quite a bit. And, and the way for me to sort of make new friends was getting into sports. So I was into all types of sports and, and actually ended up in swimming quite late. I was age 10 before I started training. And I was okay for sort of a year or two, and then everybody else started growing, and I didn't grow. I was very late uh, in puberty. So I was definitely not a, a sort of a, a, a child star, age group star. But I was very lucky with the people around me, uh, including my coach, who was very, very patient, uh, leaders and managers of the team, my parents. So they let me grow into it. And then once I started growing, it, it, it went incredibly fast. Yeah, and I sometimes I've compared it to sort of like growing up in a microwave um, <laughs> because at 16 I was like 50 my age in Sweden uh, at 15 I was 50 my age group 16 I was second as a junior 17 I won the nationals and broke my first Swedish record and 18 I won the Olympics uh, which then gave me the opportunity to come to Cal at, at the age of 19 so uh, I was incredibly fortunate in those days to have a good group of people around, around me that um, when I got low, they picked me up. And when I got too high, they bumped me back down and sort of kept me in, uh, level-headed throughout this and also reminded me of what was very important. And actually, in those days in swimming, and especially in Sweden, there was absolutely no money uh, in it. And it is, it is incredibly difficult to combine a class education and university education and maintaining a sports career in Sweden. So for us, the dream was to come to, to the U.S. and earn a scholarship and to be able to come to Cal. And I, I had Per Arvidsson, who's a fellow Big C, uh, incredibly successful uh, swimmer. We're from the same small town in, in Sweden, uh, 25,000 people. So he was sort of spearheading and being ahead of me. So I was, I, I knew what I wanted to do and I knew where I wanted to end up. And I was very fortunate to, to actually end up, uh, end up at Cal and be able to combine it. And, and, and in hindsight, it's just incredibly uh, what an opportunity that was. Yeah, well, we are, we're super thankful that you ended up at Cal too. You're, you're an absolute legend in our program. I think we... We always go around the team and, and we talk about notable alumni and, and you're one of the first people that, that always comes up as someone where it's like, look, this is something that, that Banks was able to do. He did it in the water. He did it outside of the pool. And wow, what what an incredible role model you are for, for all of us. I am a little bit interested also in when you decided what your post-swimming career would look like. Um, so you did your MBA at, at the Haas Business School a few years after graduating from Cal, uh, which, which does make me wonder, were you thinking about your post-swimming career during your four years at Cal, or if not, when did you begin to think about it? 
No, I thought about it. Uh, I, I would say uh, sort of junior, senior year, I was really thinking about where I wanted to end up and, and how could I maximize the opportunity that I, that I was given or rewarded. So I had my, my sights sort of set, set on getting an MBA. Um, and also going to Cal, what's so fantastic about Cal, is it, it, it is an institution with a fantastic reputation in the US. But people don't realize how big it is around the globe. You get a you you get a degree from Cal and you can work anywhere you want, anywhere in the world, and everybody knows that you have a quality education. So I wanted to kind of I got the opportunity to come back and I really want to make the most of it, and I was very happy to get sort of admitted into the, the MBA program. But I would say my, my senior year I was very focused on, on sort of making sure I had the credentials academically to get get back in. Well, it's, it's interesting that you see that, that sort of discussion about like thinking about your next steps as a junior and senior. We were just, uh, Rob and I spoke with Justin Forsett, this uh, running back who, you know, basically his his guidance, his mid-30s guidance to his 22-year-old self, uh, he's now a successful entrepreneur, is to like, remember that you were more than your sport. You have so much more than that. And so Rob and I have uh, made it a part of our guidance at the Welcome Back Barbecue to remind the students that the day that they arrive at Cal, they can do more than one thing. You can you can focus on more than just your sport uh, and you can develop yourself uh, for the rest of your life. You can have multiple interests and, and so forth. So I think that's great that you're doing that. No, um, absolutely true. And I, and I think there are few places in the world where you can actually, you have the opportunity to combine it because everything is close by, everything is set up for it. You just need to plan your life a bit, a bit more structured than than most other people. <laughs> That's true, for sure. So, um, broadly speaking, the professional roles that you've occupied, you know, mostly could be grouped into two categories: you know, management consulting first, and then after that, general management. And mm-hmm. since many of our listeners may not be intimately familiar with these career paths, uh, you know, management consulting is the profession of dispensing expert advice. To the executives of you know typically larger Fortune 500 companies on strategic business issues like acquiring businesses, entering new markets, selling off divisions, forming alliances with other companies, or um, advising on some aspect of management like finance or business reengineering or manufacturing processes and so forth. Uh, and so this is what you did at McKinsey, presumably, which we'll get into in a minute. Uh, and then, whereas general management can be defined as the aforementioned executive roles at companies, large or small, uh, in which there is complete responsibility, including profit and loss responsibility for either the whole company or uh, one part of the business. So, in other words, general manager for this discussion and general management for this discussion, we're referring to you know anything from the head of, the vice president of, business unit, and also all the way up to the CEO and president of company. Um, and all of those roles you occupied occupied at one time or another, although I'm uncertain if you actually were vice president ever. It sort of looks like you went from management consulting right to president of Coca-Cola <laughs> Sweden. So <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Um, after you finished swimming, you decided to study for your MBA, which uh, Ryan touched on, finished that in 1988. Can you tell us the story of how you decided on management consulting as a first step in your career and how you landed a spot at the fabled McKinsey and Company, which some call the Harvard of consulting, uh, which is generally considered to be the most prestigious management consulting firm like in the whole world. And most people say they don't even recruit at Cal, like they just recruit at Harvard and 
Yale and Oxford. And like, it's, you must have been a pretty good student. Talk to us about that <laughs> whole thing. I was an okay student, I would say. Yeah. No, but uh, I, I, having been in swimming and swam all the way, I mean, through 1986, yeah. I didn't have the opportunity to get the wealth of experience, work experience, summertime, or take a couple of years off to go on. So when I was looking for a job, I wanted to get something that was well-rounded because I didn't really know where do I fit in? Where, where do I get the most sort of value out of my personality, my skills, and what do I get most energy out of? So consultancy was a great way to get sort of a, a breadth of experience in a fairly short period of time. Yeah, and uh, I landed the job at McKinsey. I have to admit, uh, pure coincidence. Uh, there were actually a couple of Swedish McKinsey partners that traveled through the Bay Area, and they wanted to meet if there were any Swedes because they were from the Stockholm office. If there were any Swedes, in, 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 and there were two of us at the hospital. No. So competition wasn't too tough. Uh, I think Ryan would, would love to go to any Olympics and only have one guy to race against. Uh, and there were a couple of guys down at Stanford, and that's always easy competition. We know that. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, no, so it, it was a bit of a coincidence that, that, that I met them. And then I went out and interviewed with them, and I, and I passed through. So I started with them in, in Stockholm. And it was a fantastic school because expectations are sky high, quality standards are sky high, but there's also so much institutional know-how within McKinsey. So I could not have asked for a better place to start. And I was there for like three plus years, three and a half years. And I learned a lot. Hopefully I added some value someplace. But I also found out that However good of a school consultancy was, I'm just too much of an operational person. I'm too much of a people's person. I'm too much of a person who wants to carry it through and really see, okay, the plans that we put, the analysis we put together, the strategy or the change program or the M&A or whatever it is that we're working on, can I make it fruitious? Can I take it all the way? Yeah, so after a couple of years, I started looking for ways, okay, how can I get into more of an operational role and try that? Okay, I want to come back to that. But what you just mentioned is actually important for people who are considering uh, jobs in management consulting. So um, some management consultants you know, develop strategy and so forth with the, the C-suite typically, but then detach and they let the, the companies uh, implement and then there's other consultancies that, that actually stay attached and help them implement. Um, sounds like maybe McKinsey was uh, the former, you know, where you, you made the strategy and then detached. Is, is that right? And, and can you can you talk about like sort of like a day to day experience in McKinsey? I mean, uh, one person said it was like the worst job out there in terms of like work, work like work life balance. But I guess, you know, but, but, you know, very intense, yeah. intense and competitive and so forth. But, extremely steep learning curve but you know an incredible opportunity for growth especially when you're when you're a young person so yeah like talk about like how if you wanted to stay in management consulting a little longer what would be the sort of um steps in your in your progression well uh, i would say (laughs) i would say it's a bit of a sort of upside down career because and this is my personal opinion now and maybe some of my fellow mckinsey would disagree you start out by doing all the fascinating stuff. 
which is working closely with clients, supporting them, do a lot of anal- uh, analytics, understanding their business process, putting together plans, working together with the clients, and putting together something that you basically hand over to them and, and, and sort of try to prepare them as much as possible for delivery. That has changed. I know that implementation is a much bigger part than it was. I mean, we're talking 30 years ago. Uh, then as you progress, it becomes more and more of a relationship, client development, broader relationship, and it becomes more of a sales job towards the end of, of the career. Uh, but it is, a, it, it, it is an incredibly valuable uh, experience, the first number of years, where you can really try a lot of different things and develop a lot of different skills. But if you're looking for work-life balance style, <laughs> I don't think that's, it's not the place to be because if you want to maximize your opportunity, you're not going to do it nine to five. Yeah. And the thing is, I never even thought about the working hours. If somebody would have asked me how many hours a, work, a week do you work, it would be a sort of an alien question to me because I was just in there enjoying it with fantastically bright people, learning as much from the people I worked with in, in, in McKinsey, fantastically motivated clients because there were always issue of people wanted to resolve uh, and a team atmosphere. So it, it, it was fun. It, it, it was a lifestyle uh, initially. Uh, was it sustainable? I don't know. I left too early to be able to give you any uh, insight into that. Well, surely uh, there's very few ways that you can get a sense for how senior leaders of a really big organization think about organizing that group and, and keeping it motivated and, and sort of, you know, dispensing information through lots and lots of rungs of uh, people all the way around the world. And as, as a management consultant at McKinsey, it, it certainly sounds like you, you were privy to those um, sort of uh, whatever senses of perception, you know, senses of of, ex, of execution that that, that, uh, that you see in the C-suite. And um, uh, so, yeah. And, and, and then in terms of like... And the, you get, and I think an important part of the experience is you get exposure to issues and situations and people earlier than you get in many other careers. So yes. it's almost like a turbocharged sort of start to your career. Yeah. So you're at, but that also means that you're expected to be able to add value to these <laughs> discussions a little bit earlier, maybe than, than 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 you sometimes feel that you have experience for. So it's an interesting balance and trade-off there. But it 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 is a fantastic start because you really, as you said, you really get an insight into what are the realities of far more senior people than yourself. And that's where the the institutional knowledge comes in to, you know, help like the younger people at McKinsey who are bright but maybe don't have the experience. They can lean on this like you know again that's the Harvard University analogy. Of uh, you know deep deep you know institutional expertise. Um, so uh, speaking of McKinsey, thanks to Pete Buttigieg, uh, we all now know that McKinsey you know employees are typically not allowed to disclose the clients for whom that c- they consult. I don't know if that's still the case for you, probably. But were, were you uh, were you working on consumer brands? I mean, is that the? I was all over the map. I've done everything from construction companies to insurance companies and consumer companies. I've done smoke detectors for fire alarms. Yeah, so I think that was one of the beauties uh, that I was allowed to and 
had the opportunity to work with very many different companies and a little bit get a sense for, you know, whoever you talk to about a company or an industry, the first thing they will tell you is, well, we're different <laughs> and we're unique. And to a certain degree, that's true. But there are also commonalities that you can have. And that was something you could actually, or we could actually see and figure out quite early on. So respect the uniqueness, but also try to exploit the, the, the commonalities that you can learn from different situations and different companies. So I had the opportunity to work across the board, but towards sort of the, the, the final year and a half or so, I did mostly consumer. Got it. And what, what was your, you sort of answered part of what you liked least about your, sounds like you would have liked I mean, actually, let me just ask the question. What, what did you enjoy most? And conversely, what did you enjoy least about the I, time there? I enjoyed the problem solving. I enjoyed and really loved the, the, the team atmosphere, both within the McKinsey team, but also with the clients. Yeah. I, I really love sort of trying to learn new stuff as fast as possible. What frustrated me the most was after so many hours and weekends of hard work, you hand something over and you sort of have your own view on how it should be done and what it should render. Yeah. And then you come back two or three or four years later and say, ah, it didn't happen exactly the way I wanted it or the way I imagined it should be done. So that was my frustration. I want to carry that ball all the way to the end zone. Yeah, <laughs> Not yeah, so yeah. It off. <laughs> no, I, I can see that. You know, we, we, I've off, some of uh, my friends they describe the, the day as sort of like uh, you know you're in with the client all day long, and then you're building slides in the evening. And my understanding is that uh, McKinsey even had like a, an outsourced, like a an third party shop that would help with building slides. And you come back in the morning, you talk about your slides, and you've been thinking about the implementation. So I could see why that would be frustrating if then the yeah. companies didn't actually implement. <laughs> Do you think it's actually true that people hire McKinsey because partly because boards and executive teams need, you know, um, let's just say some insurance, you know, there's all these like activists sort of people suing companies these days. And if they can say point to, well, look, we've got the smartest people in the whole world working on the strategy problem with us. Like, you know, you can't say that we're pursuing something, you know, like wrongheadedly. Do you think there's anything to that or no? I, I, I think that would be, if there is anything to it, I think that's a minority. I think, yeah. I think there, I think personal opinion again, I think that two broad categories, one category are the, 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 the teams and the companies and the execs that use McKinsey in the right way, which is I do have an idea of where I want to go, but I cannot afford to have a staff sitting on the side with the resources and knowledge and the drive that a McKinsey team or two can provide. So I would bring in that for a period of time to work through the issues and the mm -hmm. questions, design the plan, bring it back in. So I never give up ownership of the strategy. I own it all the way and I use McKinsey as an extra resource. Those are the projects in my experience that really do well. Yeah. Then I think there are situations where you're not really sure so you outsource the issue. And then when it comes back, you don't own it. And you're not really up to speed on how to do it. And then I don't think you really do a good job of the implementation. Oh, and yeah. then it's less efficiently spent uh, resources. So that's my view. I think the, the alibi version or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> I think that's extremely rare uh, because it's too cumbersome and, and probably too expensive nowadays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Understood. Okay, and then last question on this subject. Um, 
you know, for people that are considering, uh, you know, working in management consulting, is, is an MBA a required sort of prerequisite for applying to McKinsey or Boston Consulting or Bain or any of these firms? I think it's changing a bit. If I look at at least, I mean, I can only speak for 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 Northern Europe. Uh, I, I, it's it's more well rounded, I would say today. So there are there are people coming in with more engineering backgrounds. There are people coming in with more broader backgrounds, but with more work experience. On the other hand, I think it's 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 a very good background to have because it's quite broad. You've seen all the different fields of management, what they're addressing. So I think having an MBA is, is probably going to give you a bit of an upper hand to begin with, but of course that can be caught up. Uh, so it's a little bit where you come from, whether you come from sort of functional expertise and trying to broaden it within McKinsey, which you can do, or whether you come with much sort of broader toolbox that you're trying to apply, which is much more the MBA background. I think the latter is probably easier. Mm. Uh, and I also think it's actually quite beneficial to not to be too many years into your career when you go into a system like McKinsey, because then you're going to have your own preconceived notions on how things should be done. Uh, and as you say, it, 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 it's a very strong network, a very strong culture. And coming in as, a, as an unwritten sheet is much, much easier. Yes. assimilate and become brainwashed really, really fast. <laughs> in <laughs> well, a positive listen, sense, I should say. At least it's good brainwashing, sense. yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. The toolbox, you know, whenever you decide to leave, the toolbox that you leave with, believe me, I, I can testify, it works. Okay, good. We're going to come back to that too. I've got, uh, I've got a, a little bit later, we're going to talk about sort of judgment and so forth and how you develop it. Um, so, so you tra- so you you get you're getting this sense that that you'd like to own the problem, build the team, take it all the way to fruition. You know that's the I remember hearing you uh, talk someplace saying that that was the fun part. Um, you know, can you can you sort of talk about your transition from McKinsey to Coke was the next step, right? Coke was the next step, and, and, how, and sort of how that unfolded and everything, like how, how you how you found the opportunity and were you working for them. If you don't have, you don't have to answer that, but you know, so forth. Yeah, <laughs> no. In those days, Coke was still sort of not doing bottling, right? There was a marketing within the U.S. You had Coca-Cola Foods who did the bottling operations. Outside of the U.S., Coca-Cola was a pure consumer marketing company. And they started to change in the early '90s. They realized that the consumer is great. We know everything about the consumer. But there's somebody in between us and the consumer called the customer. So they wanted to move in closer to that. So they, what they started to build up, uh, and again, I'm talking about my neck of the woods, Northern Europe now. U.S. was quite different. Uh, so they started building up a, a, what they call the customer service organization, which is basically a key account organization that was going to work together with the bottlers that previously they had owned the customers. And that's when they went out looking for people and, and somebody approached me. So I didn't apply for the job. Somebody called me and says, are you really going to be consulting the rest of your life or you want to get into something <laughs> different? Uh, and I just thought, I mean, the opportunity was really driving me. So I, I'm incredibly curious. I'm still like a kid in an old man's body right now. Uh, but I, I, I'm incredibly, and I've always been driven by trying to add tools into my toolbox yeah, so here I saw a fantastic opportunity uh, 
of really learning hands-on from the inside marketing of the world's greatest brand, consumer brand, combined with getting into sales because I, I went into customer service organization, setting it up and working with the bottler. Uh, a bit naively, I thought that that would be a fun combination because the bottlers, of course, they hated us. <laughs> they had previously, they had owned the customers and now suddenly I showed up and had opinions with the Coca-Cola hat. So it was also a, a fantastic school of diplomacy, uh, trying to feel, okay, how do I get into the right meetings? How, how can I add value without um, shortchanging my partner? But on the other hand, I need to make sure that my brands get upper hand from the other brands. So to me, it was just a fantastic opportunity to do both uh, and, and learn it hands on and have the pains that it is. Uh, selling is the most lonely job there is. Uh, <laughs> You got to take nine or 99 or 999 no's for every yes. And you need to respect that. Uh, it's, it's a very underestimated skill and a very underestimated job that salespeople do every single day. And that was a really good school and a really valuable experience for me. And so this was what you're describing, I think, is sort of supplier power, buyer power dynamics where you, you in this case, the brand is the furthest upstream. upstream. You have some distributors bottlers in this case who are actually selling to people like us and uh and the the bottlers prior to this time like had all the power and essentially the brand was trying to take some back getting in touch essentially all the way with with the consumer is that more or less the challenge yeah it's actually the middleman which was a customer right so Mm. in the the retailers or the uh, the restaurants That was had been the white flag because Coke did all the consumer marketing. So addressing the consumer, doing all the consumer research and the the uh, the relationship, the franchise with the consumer, that's there. But what went on with the customers, the uh, the, the retailers of the world, the uh, the uh, um, restaurants, the fast food restaurants, there that's where we sort of moved in or encroached. Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was where sort of the the, the touch points were were and the uh, the issues. That makes sense. You you also mentioned something else in there that uh, we we heard uh, just last week from um, another successful Cal entrepreneur named uh, Joey Zwillinger. He was a co-founder of a shoe company called Allbirds. Uh, anyway, he he made the point somewhere in our discussion that uh, he thinks that intellectual curiosity, the sort of you know relentless curiosity, is literally the key to life, and and often is the key to business and empathy and everything else. Do you think that's true? It sounds like you do. Uh, if you ever stop asking questions, I think you stop learning. And if you start to learn, stop learning, I think you start deteriorating. And I'm, I'm always, I always get concerned when people come in and tell me all the answers. Uh, I'm, I'm much more, I get much more interested in, in, in interested in people that come in with all the questions. Yeah. Uh, then at, at a certain point in time, you need to answer some of the questions. But I think this curiosity is, is the best way to just keep on adding on, on, on learning. I think it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And I think, you know, would you mind, would it be possible for you to contrast, um, you know, your experience as the president at Coke Sweden to, you know, some of the other companies where you work like, you know, AB Freenor or Kodak or, and, you know, how are those roles, you know, the same? How are they different? What were the challenges like? Well, the fundamentals, I think, are pretty much the same. I think what's different is Coca-Cola is an incredibly successful brand with so much brand equity that you don't move that around too much. 
And there are a number of layers on top of you that make sure that you don't. Uh, so <laughs> on the one hand, it's fantastic, the consistency with, way, with which, how they've worked or uh, over the years with the brand. On the other hand, it does make a really fast moving. And for a period of time, they got co- bit into trouble when uh, the, the, uh, the, the soft drink category, the beverage category started fragmentizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've caught up. So it's changed. Again, I'm talking about the early 90s. Uh, so I think going into smaller companies, smaller brands, uh, you become more nimble. But you, on the other hand, you don't have the power of the brand and you get to make many more decisions that can give you an uneasy feeling of, whoa, did we really get this right now? Because we bet thing. And it's, it's always nice if somebody else bets on your behalf. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. Especially if you get it wrong. Uh, yeah. But I think at the end of the day, and, and you're an entrepreneur, uh, you need to come into the mode where um, the feeling that you get before a game or before a race with the butterflies, but you really focus you really go back to, okay, I prepare for this. I'm convinced about this. Let's make this a success. Yeah, <laughs> And exactly. let's stick to it. And let's, let's really trust the preparation, the analysis, the thinking, the teamwork, and get it done. And don't start sort of looking all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you realize that you've gotten it wrong, like, be te- I think, you know, it's important to test quickly. And then, you know, if you need to redirect, you know, then you do. That's, like, yeah. And then, as you say, like, you make it work. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, what you're describing here, you know, is sort of like what the job of a general manager is. And so for a lot of business school kids, like they're thinking like, hey, maybe I'll go be in general management. You know, and it's, it's clearly it's like complex and requires like the ability to shift gears among dozens of problems and opportunities and concerns. And like one person wrote that it's sort of like juggling hand grenades while pedaling down a bumpy road on a unicycle. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. since, since you've like, you know, observed all these companies at close range, would, would you, can you extrapolate from those experiences and give us some sort of a generalized description of what it is to be a general manager, which is to say, like, to be the head of a business unit, a vice president, a CEO and so forth. And can you paint a picture of like what an average Tuesday might look like, what a week might look like, what you do, how you spend your time and so forth. And you could, you could actually just pick one of the jobs that you were in uh, if, you, if you don't want to generalize. Well, I, 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 let's try to generalize. And if it doesn't make sense, follow up. Uh, yeah. No, I think the, the first thing you have to realize when you become a general manager, that is you will come in on Monday morning with a to-do list of 40 things. And then you're going to leave on Friday night with a to-do list of 45 things. (laughs) None of the 40 that you had on Monday is checked off. Because your biggest, biggest role and job is to work with your team and to help them check off things on their to-do list. That's the biggest part. The second biggest part of your job is to make sure you're staying on course but not rigidly. So you need to spend a lot of time thinking. And when it comes to strategy, a lot of people talk about strategy work on how you're gonna go. To me, strategy is all about saying no. And I've seen so many times when you go out there in companies, especially when you're middle management, when you're not really sure and there's a couple of corporate buzzwords and some trends out there, you wanna make sure that you don't miss. 
So you try to juggle one too many of those grenades while biking down on your unicycle. To me, it's all about saying no and say, okay, I'm not going to do 10 things because there's no way I'm going to, there's no way a decathlete is going to beat a specialist. Yeah, so, and you need to be more of a specialist than a decathlete because it's tough out there. There are a lot of people out there fighting for the space and for the success for the customers and the consumers. So you need to be clear on who you are and who you're not. So having the, the courage to say no and focus on three things or four things or whatever it is and stick to it, I think that's incredibly important. Doing that, there's going to be insecurity in the organization, right? Everybody's nervous, not about what you're doing, but what you're not doing, <laughs> in case you missed it. So you need to provide a lot of comfort, a lot of focus. So then the third thing that you're going to spend your days doing is communicating, communicating, communicating. And sometimes you'll feel like a parrot because you feel <laughs> like you said the same thing 150 times. And you have. And when you've done it about 150 times, it starts to settle in because you meet people all the time and they hear it for the first, second, third, maybe fourth time. If you're lucky, the fifth time, especially if you work in a sort of geographically spread organization. Uh, so, it, so to me, it's all about, it's not about your to-do list. It's about the organization's to-do list. That makes sense. There's, a, there's actually a great no, book on, there's a great book on uh, this called Essentialism. I, I think Greg McCown wrote this uh, and it's, it's all about basically figuring out ways to say no to things that, that aren't core. Yeah. It's like uh, I read about the, uh, the English guys in the eight, the rowing. Uh, I think they finished second, I don't know how many times, and they never won. And then finally they sat down and said, okay, from now on, we're just going to ask ourselves one question. When everybody, anybody comes up with an idea, and the question is, is this going to make the boat faster? And if the answer is not yes by all eight people, don't do it. <laughs> if all eight people do it, then we'll do it. It's going to make it. So very single-minded focus. But everybody's allowed to bring in things that can make the boat go fast. But you need to convince and make sure everybody's on the same page. And I think they went on, I don't know, what's the Sydney or which, uh, which of the Olympics they went on to win. Uh, and I think that's, that's the mentality. So don't focus on your own to-do list. Make sure that you stay disciplined. But still, you, you need to maneuver a bit. Otherwise, it's, you risk to get out of context. And then communication, communication, communication. Yeah, you also mentioned that one of the things you know, I wanted to pick up on, there's a, a core tenant. Uh, in, in my, my business partner was a, is a Marine, I should say, and he uh, pointed out that in the military, great leadership is defined by leaders get, getting out in front hmm. and clearing roadblocks, making sure that the war fighters at the tip of the spear, have all the tools that they need and so forth, which uh, sounds a lot like what you just described in terms of like, you know, successful leadership. If you don't believe it, if, if, if the organization doesn't see you really believe it, why should they? Yeah. And you cannot show that from behind. you got to show that from front. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm curious about the path to how you get to this position in general management. Do people typically get into general management through management consulting as you did? Or are there also routes from marketing or sales or finance or all the above? Uh, all, I would say all of the above. Uh, there are ways in. Uh, I think there's certain functions that make it a bit more challenging that where you more often put into a functional specialist role. 
And I would say that's typical in operations or in a CFO. Uh, but even then, I mean, there, there are plenty of examples where they move on into general management roles. I think management consulting is an excellent way, but I would recommend everybody to spend a couple of years in the trenches uh, before moving in. So you really understand what the, um, the, the, daily, the daily work is all about uh, in the trenches. Yeah. And, you know, something that you've been um, I was listening to your interview that you had with former dean of the high school business, Rich Lyons, and how you were talking about think horizontal in the beginning and how important that is instead of thinking vertical right away, building up that tool set. Can you talk about that? Does that still resonate with you? Absolutely. I I think people are too eager. I think people people are too much of career planners. And I think we should be toolbox managers. I think getting experience from various, as soon as possible, as early as possible for many different functions, many different challenges, many different types of managers, co-workers, and always pay attention. There's always something to be learned. And then you put it in your toolbox. Uh, What's the old saying? If your only tool is a hammer, everything will look like a nail. But if you have a multitude of tools, you can play it in a different way. So think horizontal. I, I try to, when people come in, young people, you interview them and you ask them, what are you going to do 20 years? And if they have this clear cut answer, I get nervous because you're limiting yourself. Uh, nobody has that crystal ball, thank God, because that's what makes life interesting. It's not the, it's not the highway. It's actually the back roads where you actually have to twist and turn and figure out how you move on. And then afterwards you realize, wow, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing those things so think horizontal I, I, I think and that's my advice to, to, to every young person uh, and don't be don't be in such a rush for the titles and for the bonuses and the, be in a rush to gain experience and, and have fun and, and, and understand differences in culture what makes organizations tick what makes, what makes people want to follow you? Uh, how do you handle confrontation? How do you handle failure? Because uh, if you don't fail, you're not brave. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So there's so many of these things that people try to sh- shortcut. Yeah, so don't do that. There's plenty of time to, to do all the other stuff later on. That's just amazing. And then going back to this position of general manager, what did you enjoy most about the role? And then what are those things that you enjoyed least? Without a doubt, what I enjoy the most is when people grow. When you see people come in, they take on more responsibility, they gain confidence, they move on in the organization or they move out of the organization. I mean, I've been in several companies where we're sort of small to mid-sized, where I've been very, very honest with people come in and say, you know what? The wonderful thing you can get here is a breadth of experience because we're a small organization. Everybody gets involved in everything. So it's perfect for you if you want to grow horizontal. But if you want to be a career person, well, maximum three or four years here, maybe five, then you should move on. So you get bigger challenges. And I think it's, it's extremely gratifying when people come into my office and say, you know what, I got this opportunity with this company. And I say, great. And then you stay in touch. And then sometimes you end up working together again or not. But just seeing people growing, I think, is, 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 is the absolute most fun stuff. The most yeah. challenging part is there's always, always a sour part of, of, of management. And that is when things don't go well and you go into cost cutting or you shut down factories 
And you actually have to, have to stand up in front of people and say, well, I know this is the right thing for the company as a whole, but I'm severely negatively impacting your individual life here now. If you don't have a problem with that, you're not a human being in my book. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that is uh, that to me is heart-wrenching. Even though I know it's the right thing to do, uh, it, it, it's to me it's very difficult and painful every time. You know, Ben Horowitz has written a little bit about that. He, he always uses this bit of logic that when the, when there's a layoff, he steps up and said, look, this was a company error. This is not your fault. This is our fault. And, you know, this is negatively affecting you. We're going to try and help you guys get jobs and so forth, really humanizing it, you know, and being a part of the difficulty. Um, whereas, you know, in, in some of those moments, you could you could easily see, you know, a general manager running for the hills, trying to stay home sick for that week. Or <laughs> as the case yeah. may be, but it's the opposite of what you want to do, because everybody who stays will be watching you. Exactly. And the culture, exactly. the culture has to do with how you, you operate, I, I think, in, in really difficult times. So mm-hmm. that's, that's really, really good. Something that a theme I'm seeing here is empathy and caring about people. And as Joe and I have been doing these interviews, that's a really common theme that's coming up is empathy, especially as a leader. Can you talk about that? Does, do you think empathy is one of those kind of key qualities um, to being a leader? Is it something that has helped you in your career? Absolutely. I, I, I think you have to be extremely interested in people. I, I love to get to get to know people. Now, what do they do in the free time? What's their family? What's their interest? What's their background? What makes them tick? Uh, because then you can relate. Uh, I mean, you can be mean to a colleague, but you will never be mean to a friend. Uh, and the more you can work on then also as you get to know people, you also understand their personalities. And then when you understand that, I think you get a better chance of putting together a team and a way of working that suits as many as possible as well as possible. So to me, it's all about caring about people. And, and ironically, that also means sometimes sitting down with the person and say, you know what? You're in the wrong place. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you can continue to bang your head against the wall, but you are in the wrong place. I will help you to get into a right place. That is also empathy. Empathy is not only sugarcoating everything. It's also about really caring. And if you care about somebody, you will also bring bad news sometimes. And then you're going to, as, as, as uh, Joe was saying, then you make the most out of it. And then you sort of help people to move on. So empathy works both ways. I think it helps you putting together cultures, peoples, and team. But it also helps you guide people into sometimes better places. Luckily, that happens much more seldom than the previous things, but I think it's an important part. You know, one thing you just talked about was personalities and understanding personalities. Do you think that there is a personality profile um, of someone who's going to be a very successful and happy person in that role of a general manager? And then conversely, do you think that there's maybe personality profiles of people that should avoid general management? Or maybe there's a business school graduate out there that's thinking, well, I should be a general manager because I'm coming out of business school and that's what you're supposed to do, right? But is there maybe someone that you would also dissuade from being in general management? I, I, I think if you want to be a successful person in general management, you have to be interested in people. 
If you're not interested in people, if you're only interested in problem solving or maximizing efficiency or the lowest cost of capital, and you don't really care about people and you look at them as a number or a structure, then I think you can do the job, but I don't think you're not going to enjoy it, the organization's not going to enjoy it, and therefore the shareholders are not going to get what they're looking for. So I think it, it starts with then how you are as a person. I think they are disorganized and they're super organized, they're structured. They're all types of people. Uh, but I think at, at the core, you have to enjoy being with people, coaching people, helping people, supporting people, and developing people. Uh, because if you're going to do it on your own, hmm, McKinsey was a half-time job then, a part-time job compared to trying to do general management on your own uh, for a big organization. You can't do it. Yeah, it's interesting. There's like a, uh, <clears throat> you know, like maybe a job like investment management where you're working through lots of numbers and so forth, but you know, maybe just a little bit more distant from other people, you know, very different than the emotional complexities of daily, you know, working with human beings who are, you know, implicitly different than you and, you know, trying to understand them, motivate them, work with them and so forth. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a great question, Rob. I think you, you can, people can, there's all sorts of personality tests out there and so forth to help students try and figure out, you know, you know, the, what their sort of predispositions are, uh, 16 personalities is one. So I, I encourage people to, to do as much of that introspection. I know at McKinsey, it's a big deal, right? You guys did Myers-Briggs like every day. It's helped, I think. So well, there are plenty of tools out there. And I think also just, it's also interesting. I mean, yes, go talk to your friends. I mean, what do they see? And that you can do on the swim team, or on the rugby team, on the football team, or, or, or in the business school, or wherever. Just sit down. And again, I'm, I'm back to it sort of, don't only be curious about everybody else. Be a bit curious about yourself. What makes me tick? What do other people see? How do I come across? Is that the way I want to come across? Why does that happen? Why did I just yell at that person? Oh my God, what's wrong with me? And how, was that fair? Was it not? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. sometimes it is fair. Uh, but I think just being curious about yourself, because I think that's also going to, together with the tools that, that are more structured, as you mentioned, you'll learn a lot about yourself. It's okay, well, when do I go to bed smiling and when do I go to bed frowning? Okay, what made the difference that day? You could, you could say that general management is like the uh, sort of a, a giant process of, of self-exploration. I mean, that's certainly the way I found it. I, you know, you start I started off like not knowing that much about other people and then realize you're really starting to learn about yourself more than you're learning about other people and, you know, how to make yourself like, you know, fit better in the world. So I totally. And also, I always say, you know, everybody wants to be in a managerial role. Everybody wants to manage an organization until they do it. <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's, an, it's an endless process. You never get done. Yeah. And I always say it's sort of general management is like 360 days of frustration in a year, but five days of nirvana when it works. Oh, yeah. And those five days makes it worth it all the day. But you have to realize that 360 days a year, you will feel as 
you're not enough, you're not doing enough, and things are not really working. It's not really there. Because you are leading from the front. You are trying to change. You are trying to achieve things with the team that has not been achieved before. Because status quo is nobody gets excited about status quo. And that's difficult. And there are a lot of people out there nervous that will tell you, well, we don't have the resources, we don't have the products, we don't have the services, we don't have the budgets, we don't have the systems, or whatever it is. And you just need to constantly be the, the, the person leading it and keep on going. A bit like you, you, the, the military analogy, right? Yeah. So let's let's now drill into um, your time at uh, VNS and Cloetta, where you were occupying the CEO role. So, I, you know, CEO role is clearly the most challenging of the general management roles, partly because you know, you're removed from, to some extent, you're removed from the actual people that you have to have this empathy for. And there's so many sensibilities and awarenesses and decision frameworks and systems of control that the CEO draws upon to execute his or her job. And, you know, the role is also the connective tissue between all of the different, you know, sort of functional departments of a company. And it takes remarkable skill to balance, you know, <laughs> all the sort of emotional complexities of those people as we were just describing, and all, which are often in tension with one another. Uh, competing for resources and, you know, you know, I think sort of conflict and conflicting priorities and so forth. So, like, you know, what did you discover were the most important skills in your toolbox once you actually occupied the CEO role at VNS and, you know, in order to manage all this chaos? And how did you develop good judgment? And if you can remember, like, to just to make this really real for people, if you can remember the circumstances, like, take us back to the moments when you discovered these awarenesses and like in their relative importance and you get extra credit if the practices or remedies that you surface here are for like really messy things that aren't taught in business school. <laughs> it doesn't have yeah. to be that, but you know, like, you know, if you, yeah. Yeah. no, but I, I, I think it's a stepwise process. And I come back to this putting tools in your toolbox, you, you get put into situations and you say, whoa, that worked, or whoa, that did not work. And then so, well, that worked. Okay, I'm going to put that, so, okay. The next time I see this, I can act a little bit faster and a little bit, with a little bit more conviction. Yeah, because as you say, when you move up the ranks and once you get to the CEO position, it really becomes three things. It becomes choosing the right people, so you build the teams. That's... Any good CEO has even better people beneath him or herself. Of course. That's how you become good. As, uh, if you think you're the smartest guy or gal, mm -mm, you're in trouble. Saying no, again, because an organization is, is easily going to get overwhelmed. And then again, I come back to communication. Because as you say, there's so many different um, uh, various interest groups. Because when you go into CEO, you also open up the whole Pandora's box of the investors and the shareholders. And it becomes a different ball game. And then you need to balance what's doable, what's not doable. And you want to make sure that you're not the hero on January 1st, but you're also the hero on December 31st, right? Uh, so don't overpromise and underdeliver. <laughs> Sometimes that's that's why companies have both uh, CEOs and presidents. Isn't that right? Where the, the CEO is focused almost ex entirely externally with shareholders and, and so forth. And then your president or COO ends up executing you know, closely, you know, obviously connected to the CEO, but internally, is that is that more or less right? I, yeah, that, that's a model. It's not a model that suits me uh, because I, I would, if I wasn't the CEO with those circumstances, 
I would feel personally too detached from the daily business. Ha, yes. I would feel that I then I then I become a spokesperson for the company rather than the CEO. But that's me. That's my personality. Yeah. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. On the other hand, in my background, I'm not a manufacturing expert or an operations expert. So typically, I have a very strong person in that field. Yeah, I know my finance, but I'm not the world's greatest on, on capital structures and, and, and systems. So I need, I know that I need a strong CFO. I need a strong operations on manufacturing. The other fields I'm closer to, I know more of. If I would sort of detach myself, I would not get enough energy out of my daily work. But again, that's that's bank speaking. That's that's not saying the way it should be. And then I go back to you need to figure out who you are because I worked with state ownership. I worked in public companies, private equity companies, privately held companies, startups, big companies. Any model can work. Yeah. If you have the right people and you have the same agenda. So you something you just mentioned is actually really important that, you know, nobody is like expert at everything. Uh, you really got to build a team around you that, that, you know, has expertise in the things that you need, like for a particular company. But uh, I mean, I remember I've, I've felt like awkward about like, you know, admitting that, you know, like maybe earlier in my career, did, I'm not sure if you felt any of the same things and you know, have the cultures that you've been a part of, have they been like, have you, have you gotten more credit by saying like what you're not good at and or what somebody else may be an expert at is a different way of putting that? Um, like talked about that. I totally agree with you. And the first day, the first time, I, mean, I was only 32 the first time I became a CEO. Yeah. And I, it's, it was a relatively small company, but still. And I always say it's my, it was my loneliest day at work ever. Because I walked in there and I said, what the hell does a CEO do day one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> For sure. And, and you sort of, what do people expect? And, like, and you know all your own shortcomings, but you are not mature enough, experienced enough we're confident enough to be open with it. So you try to be everywhere and have all the answers. And guess what? You're going to burn out really fast trying to do that. Yeah. Over time, hopefully, you develop more security about who you are and what you bring to the party and therefore what you need to complement yourself with. What are the others? And when you're open with that and you start attracting people, you actually start attracting people that, wow, in this field... I get more room to maneuver, so you can get a far more experienced, skilled person in that role. In another role where you want to be close and you have more knowledge, you can bring in talent instead and say, wow, here I can learn. Yes. So you, it actually works in both fields, going back to what I said, in building a team. Because in some areas where you can be a good coach and mentor, bring in talent. Talent is the best thing for an organization. The yeah. fields where you are less interested or weaker or not so, bring in seasoned experts and give them room to maneuver. They will be happy because they get room to maneuver. So, but that took me, unfortunately, too many years to figure out. So I spent quite a number of years spinning my wheels trying to sort of impress everybody with, with everything I knew. <laughs> well, uh, this is a perfect uh, segue to another thing I wanted to discuss, which is so there's these there's these two professors at Harvard Business School, James Waldrup and Timothy Butler, uh, who've like written a lot about the people's like greatest strengths, you know, like when they're sort of starting off in, in careers can become their greatest weaknesses or can become so under certain circumstances. For example, like, you know, single minded determination to, you know, achieving a goal at any cost or 
the selflessness of a team player, willingness to do anything for the customer, professionalism. You know, all of these are fine qualities that in some cases can paradoxically lead to ineffectiveness. And you know, often the same qualities that help people early on in their careers can be a downfall later on when they reach higher levels in the organization. So I'm just wondering to help our, you know, you know, highly, you know, type A athlete listeners prepare to successfully evolve through their careers in general management. Can you share any examples, like specific examples of these sorts of management qualities that Professor Waldrup and Butler alluded to that maybe you had to work through personally in order to sort of continue to grow? Or, and if it's not you, you don't have one for yourself, it's okay if you, you know, give us some sort of an anonymized example for high performance, high performance, you know, sort of potential senior managers that were in your organizations you know, who had these characteristics like that were once feathers in their cap and then became you know, something that might have prevented them from reaching their full potential. So it could be either you or someone in your team. Yeah, I, I, I think I've observed it uh, both sort of initially. I mean, it's no secret. I, I, I worked at Kodak. Um, I'm in Kodak and I started there in 1996. Uh, in 1996, Kodak was one of the 10 most valuable global brands. And I don't know, what was it, 2012, whatever, they filed chapter 11 or maybe even 2006. Yeah. And what happened? Well, we got the digital, uh, the digital revolution. Who kicked off the digital revolution? Kodak. They were actually the first one to uh, manufacture and sell the megapixel camera that made digital photography. Uh, actually accessible to the consumer. But they had a system that had been successful for 60 years uh, or even 100 years that was built on one technology with one set of circumstances, one market position, and needed to transition into something new. And what they did is to try to do it on the cost side. But guess what? If you don't have the strategy side, you're never going to sort of save yourself to success when you go into a change process. And that and when they named the cost managers sort of as the CEOs, Wall Street w w was screaming hooray for about three quarters until <laughs> the numbers turned. Uh, so I think that was an example where you put the wrong personality in the wrong place. Also, I see when, when, when you have success early on, sometimes you think it was yeah, your approach and your methodology that was alone, but it's also situation specific. And therefore, I come back to, I think, the importance of working horizontally. So you see a lot of different situations and you understand that different situations, different cultures, different companies need different, uh, different uh, solutions. Um, but I think you need to know the basics. It's, it's sort of like people playing the music, right? You need to do the basic and the scales and really know it before you can improvise. If you only go in and start improvising, you're not going to be very good at it. So you need to sort of get the basics into place, but then you need to understand if you're only going to play the scales, it's going to be pretty boring to work for you for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think one thing that's a difficult thing to develop early on would be like judgment, just like really clear judgment and mentorship can be a very helpful thing for that. Do you have advice for people out there who are early on in their careers trying to find a good mentor um, that's going to help them in their career? Find somebody that's brutally honest uh, and that you will still respect. And there I actually think having an athletic background is a big advantage. I mean, we're used to having coaches yelling at us all the time. 
and we're all we all know how many times have we not been swearing about them what we think they are but we know we know deep inside they only want our best no matter how tough they are on us and then every now and then they will give us a thumbs up and that's when we grow right but if you can get that type of of, of relationship with one two i think maximum three people i'm not a great believer in this professional networking because I think it becomes too superficial and too polite. And it becomes a little bit also, if I scratch your back, you scratch mine. What can you do for me if, if I do this for you? That's not to me networking and mentoring. I think you need to find the coach, the brutally honest coach. And that's not always sort of the, the gray-haired experienced person. It can be somebody who's younger than you, different than you, in the family, whatever. And also a person where you feel comfortable saying, you know what, I have no clue on how to address this situation. And I'm so frustrated. That's good, but you need to find a space where you can be vulnerable um, because you can't be that on stage in front of your organization. Then it's gonna make them all nervous. <laughs> so I, I think rather than go on sort of the professional, find the people that, 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 that can be brutally honest, but they still like you. <laughs> There's they a want lot. your best, but they're not going to sugarcoat it. Yeah, there's, a lot, there's a lot of people in your network, you know, that, as to your point, it could be friends. It uh, could be a former teacher, might even be a parent, you know, that that uh, they can help you solve some of these problems that feel like really difficult in one sense. But, you know, the, someone with different experience than you can help, help finesse it. And stay in touch with people you've worked with. Stay in touch with the ones where you feel there's a connection. And sometimes there will be some people reporting to you. Sometimes there will be people that you report to. And sometimes there will be colleagues. And I don't mean the 50, 70, 80. I don't mean the Facebook networks. But I mean keep some of, some of the ones that are really dear to you. Spend the time. Don't, don't forget them and, and cultivate that. And I have, I have a number of... I can go back to Per Arvidsson that I know since uh, I was 10, 11, and he was, he's two years older than me. And I can still call him today and say, Per, you know what? I have no clue. What would you do? And vice versa. And sometimes he'll say, well, I think you're right on and stick to it. And sometimes I'll say, boy, Bank, you're, you're really off on this one. <laughs> uh, and then other people that I've only known for a couple of years. But I, I know that they will always give me honest advice. That doesn't mean they're right every time, but they will open up my solution space because many times when you get frustrated and put into time pressure, you limit, you minimize the solution space because it's too complex. If somebody can help you open up a bit and also take the drama out of it, because at the end of the day, very few decisions that are really life and death for an organization. You have a little bit more time. Yeah, and even if you get it all wrong, it takes a while before you really totally screw it up so you can fix it as you go. And is he, somebody telling you that makes you relax. Yeah. And at least there's one night to get a couple hours of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, you, you've reminded me, Rob and I were talking about this last week, the idea that if your coach isn't yelling at you, and I'm saying this as someone who's created a lot of frustration in my coaches, uh, you know, <laughs> they don't care. So you, you actually want the attention, like even as yeah. you know as painful as it can be at times. So uh, that's I think that's that because is really good. Because they want you know they want you to be better. And as long as there's I mean tough love is is okay. Yeah, tough alone is not very good. That's right. So um, 
on that note, we're, we're going to sort of shift now to some of the intangible benefits, like the one we just mentioned of the, you know, the, the thousands of hours you invested in the pool, like training, treating, competing, so many laps, you know, just early mornings, all that, you know, our audience is student athletes and very interested in whether the sensibilities that you developed as an athlete are transferable to post-sports careers. And uh, for that, I'm going to turn the mic over to uh, Mr. Murphy. Yes, yes, I'm back. Uh, so as, as Joe mentioned, we do hear a lot as student athletes that we we're the people that companies want to hire because of the work ethic we've developed, the mindset that we've developed. Do you think in your experience, do you think that's true? And if so, what swimming related traits did you take into your career that you felt like gave you an edge? I think it's very true. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, and I'll come back to it, but, but I think the traits that you develop and I think actually the first one that's the most important is a sense of confidence. You know that you can perform under pressure. So you know when, I have, when you get butterflies in your stomach, that's a good sign. Because that means it's, it's desire. You want to perform. It's not a negative sign. I'm nervous and I'm going to choke. You know that. And I think and a lot of people are not accustomed to that feeling. So pressure gets to them in a negative way rather than, whoa, this is exciting. If I would go up and make a presentation and not have butterflies, then I would go out of the room and reset because you need the butterflies to really be focused. So I think that confidence and also the confidence of you've set tough goals for yourself and you achieve them, not every time, but sometimes. And you also know not achieving goals is a fantastic learning opportunity. Because the reason why we're competing is to figure out what's working and what's not. Uh, so sometimes, you know, when you're in business, you meet people who say, well, I made budget 15 years in a, in a row. And I say, well, that's not very impressive. That means you're lowballing every time. I want you to hit it maybe five or six or seven times. And it, when you don't hit it, what did we learn? So we come up. For us, it's natural. I mean, regardless of which sport you do, learning, so cycles of learning is just natural for us. So I think this whole notion about sort of setting goals, performing under pressure, putting it all out there, and then learning from setbacks and, and celebrating success. I think those are huge things. Then on top of it, if you're going to be a, a, a scholar athlete at Cal, you know how to structure your day. You get more work in than most people do. That's a skill that's so beneficial. And that doesn't mean you should always work more hours, but sometimes you can get more out of the same number of hours a lot of other people. So I think that's, that, that's just a fantastic experience to have. Uh, and then teamwork. Uh, even I mean, People always say, well, swimming is such an individual sport. And I say, well, not really. The only thing that's individual about swimming is actually the, the act of competing. But the training, the camaraderie, working together, competing as a team, all of that is teamwork. And you know that you need everybody else around you to succeed as an individual. So I would say all of those things are are perfectly transferable into a career. And then what's most important to me is the fact that if you try to combine studies at Cal and athletics at Cal, the sports at Cal, even if you just attempt it, but if you also succeed at it, that means you have a drive. 
you have an ambition level, you have a passion. And that's what you look for in every young person you bring in. And I think, and I don't think that's, I think that's unique. That's not unique for sports. I think people that really get into music, Boy Scouts, whatever, that really do something beyond the expected because they want to. I think that's, that's what I look for in people. Because the experience, a specific experience or the specific skills for a job, you can learn that if you have the drive and the passion and the lessons that you bring in with you. That's awesome. Very long-winded answer. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I love it. I've been taking some notes throughout this whole thing, and I feel like you you kind of hit on all of them again, which is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And I, and I feel like you've talked so much about the team and the people around you and helping build them up, but you also have talked about internal ambition. What do you think it is that drove you to be the best athlete possible and did you take that into your career like the same exact way or did that shift at all when you got into your career? Well, I think what drove me as an athlete was just pure curiosity. I mean, I was not sort of a, a, a super talented kid with, with sort of with very lo- lots of early success. So to me, it was more so, well, can I catch up? How, fa- how fast can I go? How far can I go? And then it became sort of an aspect, well, Maybe it could take me all the way to the U.S. Uh, <laughs> and get the ticket into to to to, to Berkeley. So I, that always drove me because I know that's what I needed. And then when I got into school at Cal, I said, "Okay, I need to pay attention in class because that can take me into the next arena, which is the best the business arena." The thing that shifts is in those days it was within my control. I could decide. I could get up at 5.30 in the morning get into the pool. I did not have to convince anybody else. Once you get into business, initially, it's still very much within your control. But at a certain point in time, if you elect to go into general management and you go all the way to the CEO, it's not about my own drive. My only drive, my drive is there to inspire everybody else. Because if I don't get everybody else to want to get up at 5.30 and get into the pool, I will not be successful. <laughs> because I cannot do the laps for 4,000 people or whoever, how many work for me. Not even for 50 people that work for me. Not even for three. Uh, so I think that's a big shift. But the competitiveness, boy, I still hate to lose. Oh, I've just become slightly better at covering it up, <laughs> but it, it still eats me alive, and I still love to win. Uh, and I think winning as a team is, is the most energetic thing I, I can think of. Uh, it, it's just fantastic. I, I always say when you look at the Olympics or World Championships, is it amazing the person that finishes first is never tired? They jump it down and they do that. And the person finishing second is always tired. They should be slightly less tired, right? Because it's energy. And and, and I think that's that's something that drives me. I I just love celebrating success. Problem is that there's a lot of losses on, on, on that road. But that's okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. And and you you have touched so much on on the leadership side. Is there something specific that you learned from North Thornton or was there a leader at Cal when you were an underclassman that you feel like shaped your leadership form? 
I, I, I mean, I think, I think Nort, as, as we all know, I mean, he's, he's not the, the person of all the adjectives, uh, <laughs> but he's very clear and, and, and he's always there to make you better. And I think one of the, the skills that Nort has that I thought was, I mean, every year I came back is, okay, what are the new things this year? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's never stale. He just keeps on coming with new ideas. And then when I was over at Cal a couple of years ago, he started going over breaststroke techniques with me with me again. I said, well, number one, Nord, I don't know anything about breaststroke. Uh, so, <laughs> and number two, I mean, he's still going. He's still finding things. That curiosity and that drive, uh, I think, is something that, that rubbed off on, on everybody involved in that program. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think that the program is fantastic because there's so many people on the team that display a lot of things that I love to steal. I always say steal with pride, but respect copyright. Uh, <laughs> but just picking the things of people, uh, I, I think. And then you've had professors and stuff. And that's what I love about Cal. I mean, the, the, the breadth of people and experiences. I mean, it's just unrivaled. I haven't, I haven't seen it anyplace else. Yeah, so no, it's fantastic. Fantastic opportunity. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, this has definitely been a, a total pleasure for me to listen to you. I mean, you're you're someone that I look up to a ton. So this has been very informative. I've learned a ton, uh, but it's just cool. It's just cool to, to see you and, and talk to you a little bit. So Banked, as you know, 98% of our student athletes go pro in something other than their sport when they graduate from Cal. And then you have 2% of people who go pro in their sport. And then eventually they're gonna go pro in their non-sport career. And we've heard that this is a really tough transition of self-identity going from an athlete to this post-sports person. Um, And there's these feelings of being untethered, deeply uncertain about who they're gonna become, how life unfolds, so forth. So we're wondering, if your 50-something-year-old self could go back and give general advice um, to your 22-year-old self, what would you recommend and what would you say? And then also, how can our listeners follow you and reach you? <laughs> reach me is very easy. Just go, yes, <laughs> bank.barone at outlook.com. Fire off the email anytime. And go on the yellow pages, you'll find my number. I'm not very secretive. Uh, I never <laughs> believed in that. Uh, so I'm easy to find. Uh, I would be happy. I really enjoy uh, whenever I get any type of, of sign of life and any connection to, to my alma mater. I mean, Cal is, is, is forever going to have a very special place in my heart. Um, if I would give my, myself a piece of advice, uh, uh, I was very lucky because people, uh, I had people, my, my coach here in Sweden was only six years older than me. Uh, he gave me the advice very early on is, it's great that you're single-minded in swimming, but be, only be single-minded in swimming when you're in the pool. Once you get outside, be single-minded in something else, maybe two other things, so that you develop a breath. Because I think, I mean, I would have gone crazy if I would have swam full-time. I know that a lot of people do it, and people want to go pro, and they want to make money. But I would have gone crazy, and, and I would say, life is long. Thank God, in most cases, life is long. So there's plenty of time to, to do other things, and, and prepare for that. Prepare for different phases. Because even if you make tons of money, which is a dream of a lot of professional athletes, once it's over, 
What are you going to do? Are you going to sit and count your money? Well, that's going to take you about 10 minutes today on Monday morning. Then what? You're going to wait for a week and then say, okay, let's count it again. Prepare for something that gives you, because what people are missing, I think, is not the sport itself. Because once you quit, you typically know that, well, very few people quit while they're still on the uptick or on the peak. A lot of people you're all you're it and we know right we can sort of <laughs> fake it to the we can fake it to the outside but deep inside we know ourselves that we are we are slight in the downturn so when you quit i don't think it's a your participation that you really miss what you miss is something to really throw your drive at throw your your enthusiasm your focus at and to interact with people that go in the same direction so spend 10 minutes or 10% of your time figuring out where that is and then try to get the ticket into your new sport. And whether that is, I don't know, voluntary work or professional life or what coaching, whatever it is, but spend enough time to develop your skills so you have that ticket so that your transition, wherever it happens, when you're 22 after college or 26 after MBA or 40 after a professional career, at least you have a ticket into the arena and it can be as seamless as possible. And I mean, you guys are in the best place in the world to do that. You're at Cal. <laughs> I mean, it's all there. It's just like, I mean, one of the few things that we exported from Sweden is the word smurgosbord, <laughs> uh, which means it's all there. You pick what you like. But pick something. Uh, that's that would be my advice. Don't become just single mind everything you do, because nobody, nobody on what is it in a week? 144 hours or whatever it is. Uh, you go crazy. 168 hours, I guess. Uh, you'd go crazy if you just think about it that time. It's really interesting that you say uh, when you when you sort of shine a light on, let's just say a personal fortune. Justin Forsett brought this same same thing up that. Uh, you know, some of the athletes that he's known who were, were excellent professional football players and made tons of money, when they go through this transition, it's not about the money. You know, it's they want to throw themselves into something with that verve and complete, you know, sort of immersion, you know, that you were just talking about. And that's the thing that causes them to struggle for identity. So it's an interesting thing for someone to think about when they're just graduating school, because most people are thinking about, oh, I just need to make rent and you know, maybe I'll try and no, get the job with the most money or whatever. But like, you know, going after like areas of interest, you know, building and then constantly having this idea that there's more to it than just earning a buck. Uh, is, you is need really a reason valuable. for being. You need a reason. For and I think what what's really scary is, especially the longer you go in your professional career, if you don't prepare, that means once you start, you jump out. You're so much further behind all the other kids that started 22 in whatever arena you want to get into. So at least sort of try to make that gap slightly smaller. You're not going to be at the same level because you're excelling at something. Yeah. But at least have a ticket into whatever gives you energy. Yeah. And if you then have a buck on top of it, then you can really make a difference. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and you can use your closing speed, after all, to catch up, you know, as an athlete. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> Wow. Well, Bank, that is uh, that sort of comes to the end of our, our interview. And it's what is it? It's almost 1030 or something in Sweden right now. Yeah, 10 o'clock. Yeah. 10 oh, well, thank you. Thank you. 
thank you for all the wisdom for staying up late with us. Uh, this has been amazing. Like I'm, I'm like I feel like I could run through a wall right now. This, <laughs> this is really awesome. And uh, well, thank you for finding me all the way over here. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you'll see more of this in the days to come. The Big C Society is definitely rebooted, and we're uh, we're finding everybody everywhere, and we're bringing everybody together. So this is super. This, what you've Fantastic. said is going to really help. Uh, you know scores you know generations really of of athletes that come after this and listen to this podcast watch this video so we, we really really appreciate your insights thank you and thank go, you bears. So go bears go bears go bears so bank baron wow that was a master class on general management i know you'll want to learn more from him banked is easy to find he's all over the web google his name you'll see his wikipedia page and so forth in particular, the interview he did with Rich Lyons of the Haas Business School is really good, which you can find on YouTube. We'll put the link in the show notes. And you can email Bank directly at banked.baron at outlook.com. I don't know about you, but I think Banked is the most experienced, effective, and caring leader of people that I've ever met. I mean, who else do you know? that successfully run four behemoth multinational companies and advised scores of others while operating under the flag of the best consulting firm in the world. Re-listen to this podcast closely. Take notes. Transpose whole sections, word for word. What you'll notice is that there's not a word out of place, even though Banked was responding extemporaneously to our questions. If you watch the YouTube version of this episode, which is available at BigCSociety.org and on our eponymously named YouTube channel, you'll actually see Bank's eyes light up when he recounts the energy generated by learning, striving, competing alongside his fellow team members. How Bank dropped all this seasoned knowledge on what A-plus general management looks like is as important as the substance of what he said. It imbues it with authenticity and soul. I have so many favorite sections, but in particular, Bank's guidance on curiosity, uh, that it's the key to performance, growth, and success, which we've heard before from Joey Zwillinger and others, and to go horizontal with your curiosity early rings so true. It's an especially important kernel of wisdom for our hyper-ambitious student-athletes to hear. Ambition is fuel, but it can also be an Achilles heel if it draws you into self-limiting shortcuts. As Banks said, don't be in such a rush with your career. Learn the scales. I would have loved to work for Banked. I feel like I was just given a gift. I hope you do too. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at, you guessed it, bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, subscribe, write, and comment on the show at Apple Podcasts. Hit that subscribe button on YouTube and on Spotify for you Android users. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. The Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. 
Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. I appreciate our team who works very hard week in and week out on this podcast. Our liaison directors for each sport at Cal who co-host the shows. Ryan did a great job today. Our production team behind today's episode, audio and video engineering, graphics and so forth, along with my inspiring co-host, Robert Paler, whose personal story and motivational content you can learn more about at robertpaler.com. I appreciate you all. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal and you haven't connected with us on LinkedIn, join us. Send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens of the world, just like Banked. I'll see you in two weeks. On our next amazing episode, we have so many good conversations in the tank, ready to show. Can't wait to share them with you. Go Bears.